across the city and South Cambridgeshire. On FM, digital and your mobile. Cambridge 105 Radio. I'm going to read you the menu. It's fantastic. So we get better flavour because of the fen soil. I've drunk more beer since I came here and bought my two barrels than I've ever done in my life before, I think. I shouldn't have said almonds. They don't make it from almonds. <laughs> so you've got this big sticky mess when you start off. Pizza pot pies. My wife's cakes are selling up hot cakes. Brilliant, thank you. The time is right for this sort of thing. Food is everything. Cambridge is right for this sort of thing. What's it like? <laughs> Good afternoon. Welcome to Flavour with Alan Alder, Sue Bailey and me, Matt Bentman. Today, Vandalal, Parker's Tavern and now Mark Poynton's restaurant, MJP at Shepherd's, have all been reviewed in the national press recently. And we wonder what it's like when you realise that the person eating one of your meals is Marina O'Loughlin or Jay Rayner. Will Lowe, founder of the Cambridge Distillery, has recently become a master of wine. That's one of the most challenging and prestigious awards in the food and drink world. We ask him how he did it. You can never have enough oysters, and now, if your appetite for them is insatiable too, you'll be pleased to hear about the new oyster venue in Cambridge. The closure of pubs and restaurants at 10pm has been greeted with dismay by the industry. But why? Don't people just go earlier and stay the same length of time? We speak with a couple of pub landlords. And as usual, we have lots of local food and drink news for Cambridge and South Cambridgeshire. And there's our job section at the end of the programme, which includes positions at Midsummer House and Cambridge Distillery. But first, restaurant reviews. Here's Alan, who's been finding out about them and their effect on restaurateurs. What's it like when a restaurateur realises that the person on the table over there is a reviewer for a national newspaper? I spoke with Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern about when they realised that one of their guests was the observer's Jay Rayner. And with Lawrence Butler of Vanderlyle, whose experience of being reviewed by Marina O'Loughlin of the Sunday Times happened during lockdown when they were delivering both meals and picnics. Well, it's, it's all a bit of a surprise uh, to us, really. The general format of things is that you'll get a get a call from someone asking for some pictures or something like that. Yes. So either internal shots or shots of dishes. Um, and that's usually all the information you get. So when that happens to you, you think, hey, we've been, we've been reviewed. Yeah. Cue, cue butterflies and nerves and uh, waiting on newspapers being published. <laughs> right. But this was a little different. You had to kind of get the food... Uh, so she's quite far away. So we we had to um, we we finally managed to find a way to deliver it. Really? <laughs> so we got our general manager Sam uh, down. We we have no idea who the person who uh, accepted uh, the picnic was. <laughs> Don't know if it was her or not. But, you know, it's an incredibly secretive uh, thing. Because she because she's she's very uh, keen on people not being able to identify. Yeah, of course, her, it's, isn't a, she? it's a key part of, uh, of her job. So. But we, we knew she was writing a piece um, on, on picnics, and we had a picnic offering at a time. Uh, but we had no idea that the piece was mainly just going to be <laughs> about us, or that it was going to be a review or, or anything. So that was a huge surprise. Restaurant critics generally book under a, a different name. 
so the first anybody knew was when he was sitting there. So who, who realised it was him? Well, funny enough, he doesn't always look exactly like his photos. So, so the team are briefed with restaurant critics, what they look like and all that sort of stuff. But they're a little bit like me, you know. They put pictures up from, like, 20 years ago, <laughs> things like that. So we didn't actually know it was Jay Rayner until further on in the meal. So how, how did you realise that he was ordering so many dishes, maybe? No, they don't. The, um, rest, uh, the restaurant critics I've had generally come with one other guest and they, 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 they order a starter, main course, dessert, maybe a little side dish or something like that, and that's it. Uh, and, and, but they will taste their guest's food as well, generally. Unless actually Adrian Gill normally comes with something like a table of six. And he's got a family, he had a family of five, didn't he? So he would come with the whole family and, 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 and then he'd order everything, yeah. So when you realised it was Jay Rayner, what was the reaction? How, how quickly did word get round the kitchen? Well, as you can imagine, quite quickly. Quite quick, um, I, I, wow, what did we feel at the time? We're like, crikey, it's Jay Rayner, gee whiz. Um, and by then it was main course, it had already gone out. So we're like, right, what's he having for dessert? <laughs> Let's, let, let, let's focus on that. Uh, the first thing that brought uh, um, um, Jay Rayner to our attention, he asked if the bolognese sauce had pork in it. And um, we said yes. He said, right, uh, maybe that should be clearer on the menu. Uh, and then, and of course, that feeds back to the kitchen. We're like, oh, right, yeah, of course, yeah, um, um, absolutely. By the way, it, it does, but that's, that's fine. And, and, then, and then the waiting um, team came in and said, oh, remember, the staff came in and said... Um, do you know there's something about this guy he's asking questions and that was it because he didn't come in the very beginning like a lot of restaurant critics do they yeah. want to be the, the first people through the door to review and tell everyone how it is and that's quite unfair because when you're uh, opening a restaurant you're spinning about 10,000 different plates at one time so anything and everything could go wrong and it takes a while for a restaurant to settle and become what it is or grow into what it should be and things like that um, so what Jay tends to do is wait a little bit, let the restaurant settle into what it is, and then come and review it, because that's what the majority of people are going to experience, uh, um, which I think was just wonderful and very forgiving. But uh, um, uh, it, very nerve-wracking after his left, obviously, completely nerve-wracking. Uh, um, yeah, gosh, I remember it. Well, it was bringing up memories. It is unsettling, actually. How did, how did the staff feel? I mean, they must... Obviously, they're professionals. They know how important it is. Well, I'm really quite glad we didn't realise it was Jay Rayner until after the main course because it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's very nerve-wracking for team members. You know, I'm an old dog in this industry now. I've cooked for many a restaurant critic, in fact, most of them now. Um, and, and I know them, I've met them. You know, we've all been around the block now. But for new team members, this is really, really nerve-wracking. You know, um, um, they could be, if they get this wrong... It's in national papers if they make a single mistake, you know. And, and these are young people starting out in the hospitality industry. They make a single mistake and it can be put in print for the rest of their lives. Um, it's incredibly nerve-wracking for the poor little souls. Mm, right. But, but he, you did recognise it was him or your staff recognised it was him before dessert. So did, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the temptation must have been to make the dessert... Which was Cambridge Tart, I seem to remember, actually. That's pretty special anyway, isn't it? The Duke of Cambridge Tart. And do you know, by then there's nothing you can do but have confidence in your product. Because the Duke of Cambridge Tart has to be cooked in the morning anyway. So it had to be perfect by then anyway. So there's, there's no making a fresh of this, that and the other. And I think what a lot of restaurant critics do get recognised is they're quite good at just reading 
the way of the land and how it should be. They know if they've been recognised. They know if they're getting something slightly different from everybody else. If, if, if the food takes longer to come out for their table rather than the rest of the table, you know, they're, they're in tune. This is their job. That's what they do. So they get a sense of it. So I think one of the most important things is to make sure they receive a relaxed normal service what everyone else gets and then they can review otherwise they're otherwise they're selling something or they they are reviewing something which isn't the same for everybody else and then you're selling the emperor's new clothes which we all know where that goes right uh, um so uh, um i try to hit it with an edge of calm and um, confidence um, these days because um, if you rattle the team you can't have a, a waiter shaking a teacup and saucer and all that sort of what have you so um, um, and, and, and in time you know I think it's just an experience thing in time team members will get used to it and all that sort of stuff but um, yeah it, it, but it, it's, it's still to this day is a very nerve-wracking experience Did you have sleepless nights before publication? Um, well you you tend to get the call after they've been as well. So you get the call and they'll and they'll say, oh by the way, so and so has been in from the Times, so and so has been in from the Independent or the Guardian or, or, or wherever. Um, could we come in and take some pictures? And then and then you've got an idea: a you've been re- reviewed, and b when it's going to be published because you just wouldn't know otherwise. Uh, um, and so that happened with Jay Rayner's review. Uh, we had an idea when it was going to be published. Obviously, it normally comes out on a Sunday. So, what we used to do in London, we used to we used to st- um, after service, you'd go to Leicester Square and you'd buy a Sunday newspaper. And and, and that night, you'd know if you're celebrating or you're just hiding because you can read the paper. These days, it's online and it, and it doesn't didn't get released until the morning. So I stayed up on Saturday night, refreshing the page, refreshing the page, refreshing the page. And in the end, I thought, oh, well, sod it. I'll just go to bed and, and leave it like that. And then in the morning, uh, Sunday morning, I woke, uh, I, I woke up and um, I turned to my wife and I said, well, today's only going to go two ways. Either it's going to be a wonderful day or it's going to be awfully depressing. And I'm going to have to go in and G up the team. And um, I looked at my phone and I uh, thought, well, when I press refresh on this it's the it's going to be the moment of truth and there was a moment there where I just thought well actually if I don't press refresh I know I'm going to have a fine day and maybe that's better than having a good uh, the potential of having a bad day or, or a good day hey, um, but anyway I'm too I'm too inquisitive I couldn't hold it um, and I press refresh and, and the review came up and um, and then it's always a very silent and analytical quarter for an hour while you're just reading through it again and again and and and, um, and really understanding letting it soak in and we had the most amazing review from Jay Rayner honestly my mother couldn't have written better you know it was it was as if she wrote it to be honest um, <clears throat> um, we were extremely proud of that that review um, and uh, um, I, st- I still can't believe it to this day but what really made me feel so um, happy Warm and and just uh, um, just so wonderful was the little details that you just hope people will pick up the little um, elements of quality that you stretch for the things that cost you a little bit more money possibly more than you should normally spend and all these little things that that you just put your neck on the line for the the, the details that you hope people pick up 
quality of the finishings, the quality of the crockery, the quality of the cutlery, the, the, the ambience and, and the actual the reason death of uh, um, Parker's Tavern, what it, what it should be and, and what, it, what we hope for it to be, and which is just a, a buzzy, warm, atmospheric restaurant with um, simple food with the, that's, that's locally sourced but with a real quirk and a bit of a twist to it. And he just got it mm. 100%. He said it was a, a cross between a gentleman's club and a Paris bistro. I thought that was lovely, actually. Yes. Well, actually, that's my life, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's my life right there. And he got it. And, and I thought, what a, I took that as a massive compliment because uh, um, it's exactly what I, I, I envisaged it to be and I wanted it to be. We've been working hard to get. And, and um, very few critics do that where... where they just grasp it beautifully. Um, I've had some reviews where uh, the, the, the restaurant critics have, 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 have um, not got the, not even got the dish right. Not even uh, you know, they even got the, the fish wrong and things like that. And and you wonder why they they got this this right and what what, what they've missed and and all this bit. It, but it was just so satisfying. In fact, I'd never want to be. I'd never want a restaurant critic to come in ever again. I want to stop there at Jay Rayner's review because it, I, I just honestly, um, I just thought now there's a man that's really in tune mm. and, and just picked it up completely. Mm. Um, Be- beautifully written as well, actually. Oh yeah. The, the bit, the bit about the the mash. It's that he said uh, a pillow of mash, so soft and luxurious, you could put a baby down on it for a nap. Bless yeah, exactly. I quite like a bathtub full of it now and again myself, actually. <laughs> so what's the reaction when the review is published? Lawrence Butler first, then Tristan Welch again. We were all extremely excited when, when it came out because we had no idea it was, it was going to be you know, so, much, so much about us. We thought it was going to be a very minor uh, part with you know, yeah. it is, it is several offerings that people are doing at this time. So, so yeah, in, in a time of uh, almost constant worry, it was, a, it was a really exciting, happy moment. Yeah. But it wasn't just the, 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 the fact that it focused on you, it's what she said as well, which was I mean, it was so pretty lovely. good, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I couldn't have hoped for, for something, something better. Um, so for it to be both a surprise and that nice, it was rather overwhelming, really. <laughs> And what about the effect on your customers? Did, uh, did, did many of them see I mean, it? For sure. Did you get the, new the, ones? The, the, the small amount of customer interaction we get at the moment when we're, when we're handling, handing our bags uh, across the threshold to customers outside, it was, it was definitely something that uh, people were coming and asking about. And that was, it was really nice to, to see people had seen it and engaged with it. And, yeah, it was really nice. Yeah. So afterwards, you and the team must have been pretty damn pleased. Did your customers mention it? Yeah, absolutely. Our guests did mention it. Um, we were all so happy. We had a glass of champagne um, yeah. to celebrate. And, and then, you know, friends, family, colleagues, peers, all weigh in to say congratulations. Well, chefs, like other chefs you absolutely. have known. Definitely, yeah. definitely, yeah. yeah. Thanks to Lawrence Butler from Vanderlyle in Mill Road and Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern in the University Arms Hotel in Regent Street. Okay, on to our first news break now, and pride of place must go to Giles Yeo, the Wolfson College geneticist who's studying the genetics of food intake and obesity. 
Now, he's featured on Flavor over the last few years, and he's just been awarded an MBE for services to research, communication, and engagement. So big congratulations to him, and his book, Gene Eating, is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Alan's read it. He says it's fascinating. The Cambridge Cider Company has a pop-up cider stall on Bassingbourne High Street today, Saturday until 5pm. It's their way of celebrating Apple Day, which was on Wednesday just gone. If you can't get there, then their online store will be open for delivery too. Just go to thecambridgesidercompany.co.uk. If you fancy eating out this weekend, then the Queen's Head in Newton has steak and donuts serving today, Saturday from 5pm till 8ish, whilst on Sunday it will be South African street food such as Durban chicken curries and Bocat Baboti, served by Jane of the Now Now Food Company. Jane featured in our Christmas 2015 episode, good to know she and Now Now Food are still going strong. Here's some news for followers of plant-based diets, and we have our share of interesting outlets in Cambridge for those, including Stem and Glory in King Street, Thrive on Norfolk Street, and Vegan Vice Club on East Road. The Saffron Ice Cream Company in Saffron Walden is making vegan vanilla pod ice cream. They also do dairy-free sorbets, and you can find their ice creams in pubs, cafes, delis, and restaurants in Cambridgeshire. Oh, they've also just released a creamy winter cinnamon, though that one is indeed a dairy ice cream. If you prefer ice cream made even closer to home, then Jack's Gelato in Bennett Street and All Saints Passage in the town centre has got you covered with great flavours like ginger and passion fruit ripple, coconut and lime zest, and for vegans, gooseberry sorbet, dark chocolate and sea salt, or passion fruit and basil. Urban Larder in Mill Road has closed for a holiday. It will reopen on the 31st of October. Now, here's something new and exciting. A series of oyster-based pop-ups in the centre of Cambridge. Sue investigates. I'm talking to Henry, and he is from Trinity. He is one of the chefs there. But he's had this really interesting new concept called the Oyster Lab. Tell me more about the Oyster Lab. What is it? Um, so we, well, I started the Oyster Lab in the beginning of September. And the concept of it is it's basically taking oysters to the next level. I'm basically looking to just kind of elevate the, what they're paired with and to bring a bit more fun and excitement to it to people so they can enjoy it a bit more, basically. Why oysters? I'm just very passionate about oysters. I love eating oysters. And yeah, I suppose it was just something that I found that there was something to explore. So are we talking fresh oysters, cooked oysters, yeah, or a bit of both? Yeah, I mean, so it's a bit of both. Um, all the oysters that we get, well, yeah, they come in that very morning. But when we do our tasting events that are coming up over the next few months, it will be a mixture of cooked and raw oysters. So where are these tasting events going to be held? So for the rest of the year, they'll be being held at the Senate Bistro in Cambridge. That's the one opposite Grapes and Mary's, isn't That's it? That's the one, yeah, just um, with King's College in Clearside. What makes you so passionate about oysters? Why do you like them? I think for me, it's the enjoyment that people get from when they eat oysters. I think it brings a really good kind of buzz. It just, yeah, it's associated with a very happy feeling, you know, associated with a bit of champagne and sparkling wine sometimes as well. So I think there's something to be involved there, definitely. So are you doing wine pairings with your oysters? The future events I'm having at the Senate Bistro will all be paired with sparkling wines from around the world which will be done by a very good friend of mine, um, Sam Montgomery, who's also started his own 
um, private wine tasting business. What type of oysters though? Because there's more than one type of oyster. There, there are. So the ones we'll be using at the moment will be um, Mersey Rock oysters, and they will just be the base for all of our events for the rest of the year. And as our menus develop and we see kind of what people want, what they like, what they prefer, that's when we'll start implementing new stuff and essentially different types of oysters as well. And Mercy, of course, is quite local, isn't it? Yeah, that's so. it. And I mean, you know, the supply for it is amazing. The, the oysters that are coming at the moment, fantastic. So we wouldn't want to use anything else right now. And are these, are these sort of farmed, naturally grown? Tell me more about the life of an oyster. Yeah, so oysters actually live for over 15 years. Um, they, they live for a very, very long time. Um, so they're bisexual, so they can, yeah, they've got both organs, basically. <laughs> but yeah, so we get them from a company called Stickleback Fish. But there was another company that we're, that we're looking to use um, where they actually farm their own oysters. They've got all different types and sizes there. They're called Colchester Oyster Fishery. Now, there's this interesting myth about that, or is it a myth, that you should never eat oysters unless there's an R in the month? So that is a myth, absolutely. Um, I have probably eaten oysters every month of the year and I've never felt any difference in, let's say, a month that doesn't have an R in it. <laughs> yeah, because I suppose it was when there was less refrigeration, people were less careful. It's the months kind of are based around the summer, aren't they, then? So that's exactly what it would, no problem with that anymore. Mm, exactly, and we're in October, so it's yeah, absolutely so, fine. So, yeah, we're safe for now, yeah. <laughs> we're definitely very safe. All around the world, in fact, you can get oysters, because I, I remember eating oysters in Australia that were so very different to... English oysters and yeah. you know are French and Spanish ones very different it's it, it's like any produce really I mean if you look at different vegetables if you look at different fish if you look at different meat they will taste completely different depending on the habitat that they're in where the climates are different where it's a bit hotter where it's a bit colder that will change the flavor of what you're eating in most produce not just oysters so just give me a little taste perhaps of what the next dining experience is going to involve so we've got a six-course tasting menu, um, which like I said, we did at the Senate Bistro. Um, so a couple of dishes that we've got on there. Um, we're going to start off with a white wine velouté, an oyster crumb and salty fingers. Um, we're also going to have an oyster korma on there. That'll be served with a bit of mango and some puffed wild rice. And we've got another one on there, which is with chilli and yoghurt. So it's just the flavour pairings I'm trying to do is essentially something that people wouldn't have ever tried before, I believe. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something that I'm definitely very very excited to offer people. They sound really interesting because, I mean, I, I do like oysters just sort of au naturel, as it were, you know, with a decent squeeze of, of uh, lemon juice. Mm. But cooked oysters are absolutely amazing. And absolutely. And they just completely bring a different flavour profile to, to oysters themselves. Um, I've got plenty of friends who don't like raw oysters, but when they've tried the cooked ones, they really like them, So, which I completely get, because it is, if it's a texture you're not used to, it's definitely something you need to get used to. Exactly. But yeah, like I said, they're cooked very, very different. We are actually going to have a few more cooked ones on our tastings this year, just to kind of get people to try it, because I don't think many people have generally tried as many cooked oysters as they have raw, so yeah, I'm looking forward to bringing that to people. Well, I look forward to potentially coming along and tasting well, with one of your menus. Absolutely, yeah. anytime, please come down and see us, and we'll have a taste. That sounds great. So what are the dates? So at the moment, we are the dates we have available at the moment are the 3rd and 10th of November. But then from the last Tuesday in November, we'll be here at the Senate every Tuesday from then. Come around the Christmas time, so December, our menu will be a bit more Christmas-based. Um, we're looking to kind of target smaller work parties because I know that's something that people won't be able to get to experience this year. Um, so obviously anything between kind of three and 
before six. Base our base our menu around the Christmas theme. And do you book online? So best best thing to do is get in contact with me through Instagram, or my where you find all my details for my my email address and whatnot, and then yeah, I'll take care of the rest. So it's the Oyster Lab. Oyster Lab Cambridge is our Instagram, and you'll find my email address on there. Well, look forward to booking. Thank you very much. Well, that does sound good. What a great idea. Uh, Thanks there to Henry of Oyster Lab, Cambridge. And if you're doing something exciting with food or drink and think that Flavour listeners will be interested, do get in touch with us. You can email us, flavour at cambridge105.co.uk, or you can contact us via Twitter or Instagram at flavour105. We will be pleased to hear from you. Free food is available now in and around Cambridge and you can get your hands on some by using the Olio app. Yeah, and some examples of what's been recently available includes Linda McCartney's pulled pork burgers, wines for cooking, Indian madras lentils, gluten-free porridge and fresh Moroccan mint. And there is another free app called Too Good To Go which offers unsold food from restaurants at shops often at less than half price. Rather than specifying each leftover item, the surplus food is simply packaged as a magic bag, ready for you to take home rather than it being binned at the end of the day's training. And on the subject of not binning things, here is a little trick from Food Cycle to stop your potatoes from sprouting. Simply add an apple to the bag and you will add extra weeks of non-sprouting life to your potatoes. Now, I can attest to this because I've been doing this trick for the last 15 years and it always works. Food Cycle, for those who don't know, is a charity offering free food to local people, including those here in Cambridge. The current closure of pubs and restaurants at 10pm is a controversial government policy. I asked Tom Canning, landlord at the Hare and Hounds in Halton, what he thought of it. What about the 10 o'clock closing time? Absolutely baffling, absolutely pointless. Now, whereas... I, I would have half past 11 kicking out time. I would have people who've come to spend the evening with us um, sort of dribbling away throughout the evening. Now it's everybody out at 10 o'clock, which is utterly pointless. Clearly, they've not thought this through. It just boggles me, and it really frustrates me that hospitality seems to be getting hit again and again and again. But we've bent over backwards to, to be COVID-compliant. We've cleaning more than we ever have done before. The safest place to be is, is, is the pub, and we are doing our best to, to look after people, look after each other. And it just feels like, OK, next week another obstacle, next week another obstacle. And, you know, I'm so grateful to people coming out and, and, and spending time with us and, and supporting us, but it's not been made easy. Have you found it's actually affected numbers significantly, would you say? I've I've only been here since August, and the 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 uptake and support I've we've received since then has been phenomenal. So I, I don't have anything to gauge it against because no. all I've known operating this pub is under these current restrictions. And sure, people sure. have been so good and so supportive, and you know we we just want to keep the pub open and keep it as, as safe and mm. as enjoyable as possible. Mm. But did you have a lot of people coming in and staying from ten through till eleven thirty anyway? Generally, generally through, through, throughout the week, we'd, we'd have people who who would turn up at ten o'clock in the evening and stay for a couple of pints and, and then go home. And uh, as it is now, it's you know everyone's trying to cram in. We've only got twenty five seats in here, so everyone's trying to cram in. And you know we've we've got the 
tables distanced, but we only have so much capacity. We've mm. got a massive outside area, but it's 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 cold outside now, and we're having to spend money on heating to keep up with the social distancing outside so we can have more people come into the pub. It's more expense that we didn't expect to incur, but we are having to incur because of the restrictions that we're having to operate under. Mm. Jeremy Newsom of the White Horse in Barton is finding its effect is greater at weekends. Jeremy, how has it been since the 10 o'clock closing time for you? Mostly OK. It really affects the pub on a Friday and Saturday night where people would go all the way through till 11.30. It's affected the restaurant in that people are not booking later tables because they don't want to be feel, feel uh, hurried about their meals. So it has had some impact on the pub. Do you think that it has actually affected your trade a significant level or just moderately? Moderately, I'd put it. In the time we've been here, it hasn't really been a late-night pub, although people can stay till 11.30. Most of our clientele are older people and they tend to go off long before closing time. Obviously now it's getting in towards winter and there's, although you have a, a large outside seating area, it's probably better for people to be inside the pub area and in front of your fire and in the restaurant area. So you've still got a fair number of spaces for people to be in, haven't you? We've got several covers uh, and we have spaced them so that they are socially distant and screen them with perspex screens so people can be as safe as possible. Yes, and you have got a, a certain number of, of older customers, but obviously younger customers as well. And it's nice to see a place actually getting its uh, vibrancy back, because I think village pubs, even though yours is just three miles outside of Cambridge, have part of their, if you like, DNA is to be part of the community. Yes, and that is going to be increasingly difficult. If we move to Tier 2 in Cambridgeshire, when only people of the same households can come out together, the whole point of the pub is to mix with people who are in there. So how do you see Christmas panning out for you? I think Christmas may be quiet. Things like office parties, work stews are not likely to take place. We are only allowed to book groups of six under Tier 1. I think it's going to be a, a difficult Christmas for most pubs. Thanks to Tom Canning and Jeremy Newsom. The effects are clearly greater in some places than in others, and venues like Novi in Cambridge are particularly hard hit. They always did the great majority of their trade between 10pm and 2am. We'll be back after the break with more news, and then Will Lowe of Cambridge Distillery. Cambridge 105 Radio. Join me, Neil Jones, every Tuesday here on Cambridge 105 Radio for the very best from the world of rock. Every week we'll bring you big name interviews, all the latest from the local scene here in Cambridge and the very best rock songs around. It's two hours of rock every single Tuesday from nine o'clock with me, Neil Jones, right here across the city in South Cambridgeshire on Cambridge 105 Radio. Need dropping off at work? Miss the bus and must make that urgent appointment. Need picking up after a night out with your mates? 
Panther Taxis is your Cambridge-based taxi firm with over 700 drivers, offering great rates and local knowledge, ensuring you make it quickly and safely to your destination. We don't inflate our prices at peak times, and all our drivers accept payments by cash or card. Book your taxi the easy way. Download our free Panther Taxis app through your app store and start booking your taxis on the go. Call Cambridge 715-715 or see panthertaxis.co.uk. Panther Taxis, your local quick, reliable and friendly taxi company in the city. CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise. I'm Sarah, one of CKLG's friendly tax advisors. Creating and preserving wealth is an aspiration for many of our clients. In our complex world of changing legislation and family circumstances, we listen and provide you and your family with bespoke tax advice tailored to your needs. To find out more, call us on Cambridge 810100 to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or visit our website cklg.co.uk CKLG Accountants your partner in business your partner in life Cambridge 105 Radio Welcome back to Flavour on Cambridge 105 Radio Some more news now Things are moving on apace for the new operators of the St Radigan pub on King Street They put in an offer during March and then the Covid pandemic hit of course but they are getting things ready, ripping out old plasterboard and organising their wine selection. The Radigan promises to be open soon, and we will let you know all about it. The Gog Magog Farm Shop has released details of its Christmas hampers. Uh, they've got three different ones, the Downing, the Darwin and the Wolfson, each with variations of wine, mince pies, Christmas cake and so on. Find them online at thegog.com. The old bicycle shop on Regent Street has a new menu. So if you haven't visited for a while, maybe now is a good time, especially as they're still running their October Eat Out to Help Out programme. One example of the new menu is a dish of chicken supreme, potato gratin, roast carrots, kale with a port, chestnut and bacon sauce. The only thing not on the menu is old bicycles. And if you have the time, there is an interesting food article from The Guardian. It's available online and it was written by Cambridge's B. Wilson. It's called how ultra-processed food took over your shopping basket, and it asks whether it's driving obesity. B recounts the time when she was overweight as a teenager, regularly snacking on all the wrong things, and looking back, she considers what was wrong with the food, which in her words are so altered that it can be hard to recognise the underlying ingredients. Concoctions of concoctions made from cheap vegetable oils, whey proteins and sugars. So, just head to the Guardian Lifestyle section, search for articles written by B. Wilson, you'll find it there. It's a good compliment to the words of Giles Yeo, whose features you can still find on our Flavour podcast pages, or via your podcatcher of choice. If you're in the mood for a film this evening, then Cambridge Sustainable Food, as part of their Food of Our Future campaign, is screening the award-winning film Just Eat It at 5.30 tonight, that Saturday night. The film follows a couple who leave supermarket shopping behind to survive only on discarded food. After the film, there'll be a live panel discussion about food sustainability, hosted by Cambridge Sustainable Food Director Gemma Burley, with panellists including Dr Alison Grieg from Anglia Ruskin University, Rebecca Weymouth-Wood, Greater Anglia Waste Partnership, and Councillor Brian Mills. 
If you're interested, just go to eventbrite.co.uk and type Just Eat It into the search bar and then register your interest. This is a free event, by the way, and you'll be sent a Zoom link and it's well worth a watch. Midsummer House in Cambridge is preparing to launch a three-day Christmas hamper. We have no details yet, but we are sure it will be stunningly good. And now Will Lowe, who began Cambridge Distillery. Will has recently become a Master of Wine, which is surely one of the most prestigious awards that exists in the food and drink industry, requiring, as it does, great knowledge and enormous expertise. I met him in the distillery in Grantchester and asked him, what he had to do to get the award. Well, many congratulations on becoming a, a Master of Wine. And quite a sort of select group. There's, what, about 400 in the world? Uh, thank you. Yeah, that, that's right. There's 409 people that currently wear the title Master of Wine. So it's a very select few, then. Well, well it is. And one of the, the favourite statistics that uh, MWs are very proud of telling you is that more people have been to space than past the MW. <laughs> right. How did you do it? What did you, well, what did you have to do first? Uh, well, the, the MW is a three-stage process. Um, so the, the stage one is a series of exams that really are there. Uh, the intent is to judge your suitability and readiness to take the stage two exams. Uh, and in stage two, we divide things into theory and practical. So within the theory exams, there are five exams that take place a, across a week. Um, unit one that studies on viticulture. So that's everything from choosing a site to plant a vineyard right through up to and including harvest. Uh, in step two, in unit two, we have vinification. So that's everything from harvest through to bottling. In unit three, you have the handling of wine. So this is when you get involved in things like the, the chemistry, stability, filtration. Uh, and then in unit four, you're into the business of wine. And then Unit 5 is contemporary issues in wine. So um, contemporary issues as we sit here right now could be how could a winery adapt its cellar tastings to a COVID-secure environment. Um, dare I say the B word that's approaching towards the end of the year, uh, the economic impact of Brexit. And, and then on the other side is the, the tasting papers. And these are the bits that get the headline because they are uh, rightly notorious. That there are three individual papers that's taken place over three consecutive days and in each paper you're presented with 12 wines. You have two hours and 15 minutes in which to accurately assess the content of those glasses. So assessment, depending on the question, and you could have a different question for every glass, um, they would cover things like the, the provenance, the maturity, uh, the methods of production involved in the wine, uh, through to very technical elements, the levels of, uh, of alcohol, which you have to get to within half a percent. Uh, in order to score your points on that, uh, through to the commercial viability of the wine. So who are these wines made for? When should they be consumed? Are they meant for trading and investment, or will they be sold from a chiller cabinet in a supermarket? All sorts of questions along those lines. How much detail do they expect on provenance? Well, again, that would depend on which wine they were examining. If you were in Burgundy, for example, or Bordeaux, you would want to be going into the uh, the individual commune, the individual uh, villages uh, in terms of detail. Uh, if, for example, it's a, a, a Provence rosé, then getting to within Provence would, would probably be close enough. Um, but you'll be aware that the, the world of wine is changing. 
You know, there are multiple producers across dozens of different countries that are producing increasingly convincing lookalikes of the classic mm-hmm. regions. Uh, and you would be expected to be familiar with those as well. Uh, but when there is a sort of a, a more generic, dare I say, more accessibly priced uh, regional blend, then you know, acknowledging that it's likely from a vast swathe of Australia rather than narrowing it down to a single postcode in Chablis would be an acceptable approach. Yes. Not at all unlikely to have, for example, four glasses in front of you, uh, four of the 12, and the question could be that uh, these four are made from the same single grape variety uh, and with reasons. Uh, determine their their provenance uh, and their uh, place of origin. So uh, within that, for example, you know, it'd be very unlikely to not have one from from Burgundy, and there you'd need to be at, at the level of, uh, of naming the village. Even if it's from New Zealand, for example, there are huge differences between the wines that are coming from uh, Otago versus Martinborough versus Marlborough versus um, uh, Auckland, for example, and. Those places that are growing those grapes, they, they do, they leave a, uh, a fingerprint almost on the grape. It stays in its DNA throughout all of the winemaking processes. And of course, there are slight trends in the winemaking processes which can be associated with each area. So with, with practice, with study, with repeated exposure to these inflections, uh, it is possible to determine the provenance to really quite an unnervingly accurate degree so your your preparation involved tasting a lot of wine, sir? Yes, I mean, I, I think it's probably fair to say that over the past five years, I will have spat out more wines than you'll drink in, in your life. There is no substitute for rigorous preparation, and the preparation is, is very involved. You know, at a conservative estimate, uh, a student would taste around 5,000 wines per year uh, in preparation. In order to pass tasting, you need to pass all three papers that week and there is one attempt per year. The words that I heard, um, and, and I forget to whom I should attribute them, but words that really ring true, uh, the best wine tasters on the planet often will be MW students. You leave no stone unturned, and the depth required of knowledge and tasting experience is one thing, but the breadth is really quite another. Uh, and there are not many professionals who have to continue both that depth and breadth simultaneously Mm -hmm. for their ongoing career, far more often it's the case that someone will then become a highly, highly regarded expert in Bordeaux, in Burgundy, in the super Tuscan wines, in whatever it may be. It does sound like an expensive process. It is, it is. Um, I mean, there's again, there's no escaping that. I was very fortunate. I started the Master of Wine on a scholarship. Uh, and then I passed the first year, and the first year was the bit that was covered by the scholarship. It was very generously provided by uh, by Wines of Spain. Uh, but then I found myself uh, staring at stage two, and that actually um, it could be quite a quite an interesting thing. There is no no master distiller has ever achieved this qualification, and I thought that having spent a lot of my time trying to bring the worlds of wines and spirits closer together, I thought, well, what better way than to uh, the titles in, in both industries and, and move that forward. But how do you bring them together? Will, will, will this qualification 
complement your work in, 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 in distilling in any way? It's, it's as if we'd rehearsed this, because actually that brings me beautifully to stage three uh, of the MW qualification. In stage three, you have to produce a unique piece of work. It's a dissertation. Uh, it's called a, a research project. Uh, and I chose to, uh, for my study, focus on the impact, the wider impact of learning wine tasting. I found anecdotally that, that by honing my palate to work in wines as well as spirits made me better at sp- tasting spirits. So I set out through my research projects to determine what, empirically whether teaching people to taste qualitatively in wine improves their ability to taste in spirits as well, despite there being no direct teaching on, on that subject matter. Mm-hmm. And the spoiler alert, if you uh, have, don't have the inclination to wade through my, my project, uh, is that, yes, that, that does prove to be true. If someone becomes sort of three times better at tasting wine as a result of the education, they'll become about one and a half times better at tasting spirits with no direct teaching in that subject. Right. Um, and it struck me that... Um, my appreciation of wine went hand in hand with my increased understanding thereof. And I thought, how funny it is that uh, winemakers, distillers, we go to such great lengths to find those diminishing returns, those tiny little step-ups that we can to increase the quality of a product. But actually, the thing that will improve that experience the most for any consumer is understanding that final element of taste that lies within each of us of, as individuals. And I saw that as a really powerful thing that we can, in, as an industry, and should be able to utilise to increase people's enjoyment. Do you find that different people have widely different palates, oh, yes. palate sensitivities? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, the science of flavour is thus far, we're scratching the surface. We really are. There's, uh, there are uh, some very forward-thinking uh, professionals, people like Professor Charles Spence over in Oxford, uh, who really are starting now to get under the skin of flavour perception. You, know, you were probably taught in school that you can taste five things on your tongue and each one in different places. And that's not true. Um, you know, it never was true. We understand it not to be true now, but we still teach that to our school children. It's bizarre. Um, but yes, uh, flavour absolutely is a spectrum the person perceiving the flavor is a huge part of that taste experience your genetics play a massive part in it as do your experiences and you know and statistically speaking um, you know around one in 20 people listening to this will hate the flavor of coriander and those people that hate it they will all say for the same reason they'll say it tastes like soap now, to me, it doesn't taste like soap. I can tell from your expression it doesn't to you either. No. Um, but to people that genuinely despise it, it does, and it's for that reason. Now, we know now that that's for a genetic reason, and we found the gene, the marker. So you can take a, a swab from somebody uh, and go to a lab and find out whether or not they enjoy the flavour of coriander. Now, from a genetic point of view, you can't undo that. You can't suddenly make coriander appealing to someone that finds it uh, soapy because that's hard-coded. However, uh, there are other ways that you can grow to dislike things. And you know, if I take a trip into uh, different spirits, for example, it's a fair bet there are some people that have discovered things like sambuca or tequila and perhaps uh, had rather more of them than they wish and have never looked at those products again. And that, of course, is learned behaviour. Uh, and those it is possible. Uh, to reverse out so people's understanding of flavor 
at the moment is you know, really the tip of the iceberg. Your experience of all the preparation that you've done and all the tastings that you've done in the last few years, has that affected your choice of everyday wine drinking? Uh, absolutely. It, it definitely has, yes. I mean, my um, uh, what I get from uh, a glass now is different, uh, undeniably different, and it's very hard once you've sort of trained in almost that sort of muscle memory at the risk of using a cliche uh, of diagnosing uh, a wine every time you know as soon as you as soon as it's in the glass you're looking at it you know what does the depth of color tell me about the likely variety that will have been used here what does the uh, the, the brightness or the dullness or the, uh, the the red tinge to it tell me about its level of likely level of maturity this is before it's even anywhere near your nose it's very hard to not do that. I often think it must be um, a bit like being a, a dentist. You can't help but look at other people's teeth when you see them. It's very hard to sort of t- to turn that off. Also, uh, I think it's fair to it's a fair cop to say that I do take joy from going through that process. Uh, so I do tend now to gravitate to more, perhaps more engaging wines, uh, wines that have got more of a story to tell, rather than the sort of the the, the simpler, fruitier, more uh, accessible uh, wines that that might be poured more freely. So, what is your favourite, or what sort of wine do you have an everyday favourite? Um, well, actually, I, I, I sort of have to object to the, to the word every day. I certainly don't drink uh, uh, on an everyday basis. And, and actually now uh, I tend more to drink, as far as I can, m- much higher quality wines uh, on, a, on a less frequent basis. Uh, certainly I, I sort of taste very frequently, but, but drinking is, uh, is certainly not a, a, an everyday activity. I like that because it makes things more special when I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we plan a lot more than we would have done previously as well. So my wife and I will, will plan what meal we're going to have and the wines for it. My, my heartland is probably in, in Tuscany. Brunello de Montalcino is a real sort of um, a real favourite of mine. Uh, and also we're very keen on a lot of the, the newer, or more rather newly emerging, um, high quality English sparkling wines as well, uh, because some of those that we've had recently have been absolutely superb. And I, I really think a, a huge, huge growth sector. Yeah, yeah I mean, for, for me, food and wine are, are, are not a separable thing. And in the same way as you know, any garnish complementary sauces other sides that you might put with a with a meal i have always considered everything at the table to be part of that meal uh, so the the wine the choice of wine is as important as the choice uh, of a sauce that you might have with a steak or uh, or the gravy that you might have with a with a roast dinner it's, to me it's absolutely integral and and look, people go on a lot about food and wine matching but it really genuinely is possible to repeatedly make the wine and food together taste greater than the sum of their parts. And those are the bits that I'm always coveting, that opportunity to combine the art of the chef with the art of the winemaker and make something that neither could do alone. I agree. (laughs) Thanks very much, Will. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. And that was Will Lowe. There's a distillery masterclass every Saturday and Sunday at 2pm at the distillery and they also arrange private tastings. Details are on the Cambridge Distillery website where you can book. And there's a position available at the distillery. Details in a couple of minutes. Our final news update now. 
And as Halloween approaches, Maurizio in Mill Road and Halloumann at Cambridge Market have some new menu items that feature pumpkins. And Barbarella in Chesterton Road has been selling pumpkin patch salted caramel brownies. Gourmandise's patisserie box is back. It includes a spooky chocolate eclair, a flan patissiere, a pear frangipan and a chocolate opera gâteau. The box is £12 and you can order via the Gourmandise Instagram account by noon on Wednesday. Corinne is delivering to the villages around Cottenham, but if you live further afield, you can collect. And Prudini is delivering hot food to the villages around Willingham. That's North Stowe, Over, Swavesea, Longstanton, Rampton, Barhill and Willingham itself. And they will deliver food for reheating if you live further away. You can contact them via their website, pudini.co.uk or their Instagram account. Malloy's restaurant at the Green Dragon in Chesterton is also doing deliveries with 15% off the menu for orders over £10. Details on Instagram. And finally, Vine and Cork have 15% off selected wines until the end of October. And you can order online using the code FALL15, F-A-L-L-1-5. And this came in just in time. Next week is half-term for schools, and Chef Mark Poynton, who runs the MJP restaurant at the Shepherds in High Street, Venditton, and is a pretty regular voice on flavour, well, he has teamed up with councillor Alex Collis. That's another voice we've often had on flavour through her work with Food Cycle. And together, Mark and Alex are going to be helping to fill the void for the 750-plus local families that will be struggling to feed their children across the coming week. Now, that is a really great gesture, and Mark signs off by saying thank you to footballer Marcus Rashford for continuing to highlight this problem. And you can follow Chef Mark Poynton on Twitter at Mark J. Poynton, P-O-Y-N-T-O-N. Good on you, Mark and Alex. And there is the sound of green onions signalling the start of our jobs section. Darwin Kitchens at Darwin College has a few colleagues who are looking for casual or part-time chef work. Send a direct message to at Darwin Kitchens on Twitter for more information. Midsummer House is looking for a dynamic restaurant manager to help drive the business forward and develop the team. It's a four-day working week and you should contact admin at midsummerhouse.co.uk if you're interested. Finally today, a position at Cambridge Distillery. They are looking for an interim operations manager. So send Will Lowe a message via Twitter or email the distillery. And that's about all the time we have for today. We are here on alternate Saturdays at 12 noon, repeated on Sundays at 2pm, and then again on Mondays at 6. There's also the podcast, which will be available early in the next week. And please remember that if you're doing something exciting with food or drink, and think flavour listeners would be interested, do get in touch with us. You can email us, flavour at cambridge105.co.uk, or contact via Twitter or Instagram at Flavour105. We'd love to hear from you. Coming up on Cambridge 105 Radio today at 1 o'clock is the Cambridgeshire Football Show with Ollie Slack. And at 2 o'clock, Lee Chambers talks to Megan Hunter uh, about her second novel, The Harpy. James Raven discusses the Oxford Illustrated History of the Book. And Helen Callahan chats about her latest psychological thriller, Nightfalls Still Missing. 
But that's all from us. We will be back on the 7th of November. So until then, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.